Welcome to the Researchers' Roundtable, the gifts of resisting the historical erasure of the COVID-19 pandemic with community-based research. Podcast hosted by Mario Oando and organized by Dr. Ana Rosas. I wanted to first say thank you for tuning in to a conversation between Dr. Dan Bustillo, the Cognate Collective, Amy Sanchez-Artiaga, and Misael Diaz, as well as myself, Mario Oando, a podcast that is an accompaniment to the special issue of the University of California Humanities Research Institute's foundry uh, platform and collection entitled The Humanizing Acts, Resisting the Historical Erasure of the Global COVID-19 Pandemic Across the U.S.-Mexico Borderlands, edited and organized by Dr. Ana Elizabeth Rosas. A special thank you to Dr. Ana Rosas for allowing the space for this audio accompaniment and contribution to the special issue. Dan, Amy, Misael, and myself joined together uh, to discuss and be part of this Researchers' Roundtable podcast to think through the special issues work, to think through our own contributions to the special issue, and to expand on the generative potential of this issue. On May 24th, 2023, contributors to the special issue met in the Humanities Gateway at UC Irvine, hosted by Dr. Ana Elizabeth Rosas, in sessions that allowed for us to think through intentional exchanges and visibilities, revelatory connections, and diversely emotional accompaniments. And attending and participating in this wonderful uh, event allowed us to think about how we intentionally, poetically, artistically, scholarly resist uh, the COVID-19 pandemic. And at that event, um, we were thinking through uh, the suspensions of time and the importance of ensuring that in the calculations of power, the indifference of power, the historical impulse of capital to position us back into very specific modes of existence and labor and health uh, in this post-COVID period uh, at this event through a wonderful showcase and archiving of our work. Uh, Dr. Ana Elizabeth Rosas, Dan Bustillo, Angelica Flores Valdivia, myself, Sue Cronmiller, The Cognate Collective, Ana Elizabeth Rosas, Christian uh, Baez and Adrian Felix organized to really think about the connections that we all make uh, beyond the state, before the state, as we think through what it means to engage in being very intentional about presence and mortality and intergenerational labor and solidarity. Uh, at this event, one of the things that I learned uh, was really thinking about how much the aspirational capital of research really informs what kept us going throughout the pandemic for those of us engaged in scholarship. In this roundtable, 
the contributors to the special issue sat down um, together uh, with me as a sampling of the gifts that were displayed on that May 24th event at UC Irvine. Throughout this roundtable, we're going to be talking about and really centering the space and place of the gifts of research, which in many ways are the gifts of life after the violence of the COVID-19 pandemic, as we reflect on being alive throughout the pandemic and surviving the pandemic. How do we begin to think about the pandemic thoughtfully in a way that values the livability, uh, the lives and survival strategies, tactics of queer and trans of color community and spaces? Throughout this roundtable, we also talk about the very grounded material and celestial and ancestral constellations of social spaces such as swap meets. We also talk about the methods that reveal the cariño work, the care work, the gentleness, and the oral historical work that allows us to really think about what it means to conduct research in the pandemic. As a result, as you're engaging this researchers roundtable, those gifts really inform the goals of this conversation as an accompaniment to the special issue, which is to remember the pandemic together as a way to challenge the isolation of that pandemic with conviviality, to challenge the desperation we all felt with intentional and collective reflection, to center the premature death that occurred as a form of racial capitalism and structural indifference to lives of color with life-affirming practices and research and accompaniment. As an introduction to this accompanying podcast, I can't help but think about how this conversation allows us to really reflect on how memory of a time of deep, deep isolation, doing that memory work together creates new attachments and new affectivities to that time. It positions us to reflect and remember and learn from what was not possible throughout the pre-vaccine part of the pandemic and make possible those lessons in action, in research and contemplation and conviviality. With that in mind, I invite you to listen to our researcher roundtable. And I want to thank Dan Amy, Misael, and Dr. Ana Rosas for your wonderful work in allowing this conversation to take place. Part of this in invitation is a short poetic introduction. An abyss of apathy about the pandemic sustains itself as solid as the media's sensationalized coverage of the premature death of the pandemic. This abyss of apathy calls into consumption, calls us into forgetfulness, calls us into relentless laboring, and no time to reflect, to revolt. Remembering together reminds us of the gift of our aliveness past the possibility of premature death within the premature death. The gift of research as intentional signage of our dignity and our love for communities, 
and respect for the knowledge that communities forged and so willingly shared with us as a way to always already resist the historical erasure of the pandemic with collective accompaniment. And with that poetic introduction, I welcome you into this researcher's roundtable, the gifts of resisting erasure of the COVID-19 pandemic with communal and community-based research. Enjoy. Thank you for being here. Um, I have uh, the unique honor of hosting our roundtable uh, discussion for the Humanizing Acts, Resisting the Historical Erasure of the, of the Global COVID-19 Pandemic across the U.S.-Mexico borderlands, um, edited by Dr. Ana Rosas. Uh, we special thank you for their invitation to this work um, and to congregate both virtually uh, and in person in the next week. I'm forever grateful to have the opportunity to really reflect critically on uh, the various research projects that everyone in the special issue contributed, as well as in um, the opportunity to think about a time that was catastrophic uh, globally, that was intimately catastrophic, but also socially, politically, economically, and continues to be. Um, and I find a lot of uh, energy uh, to continue thinking about how this special issue might help us um, resist the continuous historical erasure of the COVID-19 pandemic, even as we're navigating what some uh, here in, in the middle of 2023, uh, towards the middle of 2023, are calling a kind of post-COVID period um, with the relieving of a lot of relief, both economic as well as in terms of uh, at the level of evictions, at the level of um, these different um, anti-immigrant uh, policies at the border, um, you know, what does it mean to be in this era and to be actively resisting that with really thoughtful work? Um, and I'm going to go ahead and pass uh, the mic to Dan uh, to introduce themselves as we share uh, why we're here today um, and however uh, they'd like to introduce themselves. Uh, so I'll pass the mic to Dan. Thank you so much. And thank you for making this space uh, possible. Um, so my name is Dan, I also go by Danny, and my pronouns are they or aye. And um, I'm finishing up my PhD in visual studies at uh, UC Irvine, and I'll pass the mic to Cognit Collective. Hi, y'all. Um, so it's so like, it's so nice to be able to gather like this with you both. Um, my name is Amy Sanchez-Artiaga, my pronouns are she, her. My name is Misael Diaz, uh, pronouns. Him. And uh, we want to acknowledge that we are recording today on Kumei land. Um, and so it's also cool to be able to gather in this way. And I know that you all probably find yourself on a Hashman Tongba land. Um, so to also right, like reflect on the place we are in this region now called like Southern California, um, which, yeah, has been stewarded um, for a time immemorial 
by um, these uh, native stewards. And so we want to start by acknowledging and just having um, gratitude around that. Um, a lot of our work has uh, contemplated um, and thought about um, exchange different kinds of social political economies at the US-Mexico border um, and migration as a kind of facet of that. So um, we're excited to share more about that context, the specificity of that within the COVID-19 um, pandemic. And I don't know, is there anything you wanna add? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we're artists and teachers and excited to talk to you both. <laughs> Thanks, y'all. Well, I'm Mario. My pronouns are uh, he, el. Um, and, uh, you know, I have the honor to um, facilitate and also participate uh, in our roundtable addressing and thinking through um, critical questions about the special issue. Um, and uh, the first question here in our roundtable, um, which I'll pass to Dan, if that's okay, um, to get us uh, started after I kind of facilitate a bit, um, is that the special issue centers humanizing approaches to impactful and transformative experiences during and or as a response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and the first question is what introductory methodological and or political contexts are critical for readers to contemplate your contribution to the special issue. Um, as I as I think about and contemplate this question for my piece, which um, is entitled "Después de la tempestad viene la calma," um, which is a a quote from one of our narrators of the Archives of Mortality Project, uh, which is a collection of undergraduate, graduate students, and myself who've been interviewing. Uh, family and um, friends and loved ones over the last about two and a half years, a little bit less than two and a half years, um, is this kind of generative potential of the kind of methodologies that we were enacting uh, in our archival work um, and was actually trying to conceptualize cariño, um, care, uh, which we define as a kind of tenderness, or love uh, and care, TLC, as a very embodied methodological practice in our work. Um, all of us felt completely uh, disconnected from our families. And this project was about, you know, using oral history as a conduit uh, to reconnecting with folks, um, most of the time on Zoom, but um, and often in other contexts um, a little bit differently, uh, but as safely as possible. And um, one of the, the quote that comes from that piece, I think is really critical to understanding the work because um, it's not necessarily about pacifying our emotions about the pandemic, right? That this uh, after a storm comes the peace, um, but rather that uh, we really did intentional uh, engaging practices, uh, contemplative practices to be present, um, to actually um, be centered around what we were choosing to do, which was to confront trauma. We were actively choosing to do that, um, which can oftentimes be um, uh, difficult to see that as a choice. <laughs> um, but that's what we were choosing to do. And we had to sort of find a place that was uh, possible for us to do that work. 
Um, and so when we encountered that, when we encountered a lot of love and cariño from the folks that we had spent so much time thinking about what that meant in our research, um, that's really where the calm comes in for me is what we're presenting now um, with the different interviews, uh, as well as a podcast project, a course that has now uh, been approved to be taught around that, and that students in that course will be able to participate uh, in um, curating and adding to our oral history archive um, with the same intention to think about cariño um, as a very intentional practice in oral history work. Um, and it's a little bit different than self-care, which is really, uh, which was a, a part of the conversation with undergraduate students around what cariño means in terms of self-care. Uh, we were really thinking about what collective care is, uh, what critiques of of how we remember as well are really central as well. Um, you know, we live in a society that is very grounded in the practice of forgetting. Um, as Amy, as, as you were uh, prompting us uh, a little while ago, uh, the practice of settler time is so central to how fast things proceed in a capitalist economy. Um, and this space and place of settler time, as it comes to something that is Yesterday, I mean, you know, March, you know, 17th, you know, 2020 is not a long time ago, you know, and the speed and efficiency of capitalism to, um, you know, move is really rooted in that kind of settler time of forgetting um, both where we are in space on native land, uh, steward by native peoples, but also, right, um, you know, toiled and bled on, right, um, through genocidal war, as well as enslavement, people of African descent. Um, you know, this kind of space to forget is is a part and parcel of uh, the very structures of the, of the U.S., but also the global economy. And I think the work that we did was really trying to slow down um, very carefully and do that methodologically. And I think that's where the calm comes in is how do we uh, find space and time to mourn, which has been so difficult the last few years. And when we think about time right now, and we think about those of us who are trying to also receive care um, from things that we didn't take care of because, because of hospitalizations and other preventable um, illnesses and diseases as well, you know, um, this is ongoing, right? How do we be present um, and be attentive to what was also not possible at that time? Um, and so methodologically, politically, uh, that's what really grounds the work is that emotive space of care. Um, how, what does that look like in our archive and in our work? So with that said, I'll pass the mic to, to Dan. Thank you for, for sharing all of that. Um... Um, I was taking notes, uh, you know, and, and just thinking about some of the things that you were saying. Um, um, that I, I like, I'm feeling like I want to, you know, respond to in some way. So maybe I'll weave it in and at different points. Um, but um, yeah, so I think you know uh, the piece that I wrote is called um, "Trespass: A Reflection on Transborder Research," um, and a lot of it. Um, the piece comes out of, of um, a chapter in my dissertation 
um, which is all about uh, trans Latinx activism in different bordered contexts. Um, and that particular chapter uh, looks at the like US-Mexico border um, and, and particularly uh, looks to um, trans and queer um, um, migrant activism in Tijuana. Um, so um, I think for, for me, like a context that's important for readers to be thinking about when they engage that particular piece is um, trans life <laughs> at the border, trans migrant life. I think so much, you know, so much of the narratives around uh, trans migrant life uh, focus on um, are impacted by these structures of like uh, forgetting, you know, kind of thinking about what you were talking about, uh, Mario, and and the ways the ways that erasure happens, like you know, erasure and forgetting is this kind of like structural process, um, and and you know, trans and queer um, uh, migrants are deeply impacted by that, even in the ways that like you know, news circulates. So I really wanted to focus on the work, the labor that activists do to make trans and queer migrant life possible and to make trans and queer community possible. So I think that kind of political context of like, you know, trans and queer migrant life at the border um, is, is the context um, and, the, and the structures that produce erasure, you know, even pre-pandemic, um, but further exacerbated during the pandemic. And this could be, you know, structures, whether it's, for instance, um, you know, uh, dead naming um, trans folks when we do hear about their life, it's via their death and often, you know, uh, it, and they're often dead named in that process um, and often then corrected by a trans activist. So there's all this like activist labor that is constantly countering that process of erasure. And then, you know, during the pandemic, um, some of the uh, context that uh, like shapes the research and shapes the the life that I'm researching also, you know, has to do with the, um, like, A, the increased kind of move to online or just different kinds of practices around socializing, but that a lot of that doesn't change in the same way for folks who are living in a shelter, you know, and still trying to cross through multiple borders. So that's one thing that I was trying to, you know, think through. And then, of course, you know, uh, Title 42 and, and actual structural aspects that make being at life at the border uh, an extended, you know, an even more extended uh, uh, kind of process um, and an impossible process or difficult process or deadly process for, for a lot of folks, uh, trans and queer migrants, you know, among them. So th that's the larger context that I think I, 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 is important for readers to, to think about when, when reading my contribution. Yeah, um, I think, thank you, Dan, because um, I think some of that context is also helpful for like thinking about the uh, border context where we have developed the work and like aspects of the um, contribution um, that is part of the foundry issue that's called Dianquitzli, Reflections on Border Markets in Times of Crisis. So it, since 2010, we have uh, collaborated as Cognate Collective um, and one of the kind of foundational sites where we've developed a lot of our work have been um, in public markets. So in places like swap meets, Sobre Ruedas, 
um, the, you know, these kind of like uh, street markets that are open air, um, that in Tijuana kind of move between neighborhoods that are there, like these kind of sobre ruedas literally means, right, like an on wheels market um, that moves uh, throughout the city. And then in California, on the U.S. side, um, swap meets and the way that these marketplaces really serve as um, important hubs for all kinds of exchange um, for different kinds of um, like political enunciation and like formation around people's identity um, in particularly when we look to swap meets um, like in LA. So really, I should also say that we've worked between Los Angeles and Tijuana, the way that you can go to the swap meet and people can um, find items, find products um, that, you know, if those folks are undocumented, maybe they might not be able to find anywhere else, but within that swap meet that create these um, important ties to home, but also allow people to create sort of home space within their community as migrant people. Um, and that's so, so important for, um, you know, these like, forms of self-determination um, as uh, migrant communities. So um, in our contribution and in the writing that we did for this piece, we we're really thinking about um, how our practice as artists, because we would do that often in person through workshops and through um, working with students and with community in these spaces that really had to shift. Um, in this time of, uh, especially in this kind of time of confinement and how um, we really reflect upon how then returning to um, the marketplace after we were vaccinated and after we were able to sort of emerge and like we found ourselves all of a sudden in these places, uh, these marketplaces that we had visited many times that were incredibly familiar, but irrevocably changed right? Because public life had changed. And so that's an aspect of the contribution. I think that we really, we really took advantage of that time to think about like the, the, the grief feelings that come up around that. But also, and maybe Misan, you want to elaborate around like the kind of pivot that the two of us had around just like methodology and thinking about etymology mm-hmm. and like the tianquitsu itself do you want because i feel like i've just like spoken a lot yeah so uh i think in terms of some other contexts that would be helpful for understanding the piece i think one uh is just perhaps a bit more historical in terms of our work one of the reasons why we really like to focus on markets is because as amy was mentioning uh there become these really important community hubs uh, especially for immigrant communities but also because they reveal the ways in which communities are finding ways of maintaining connection and maintaining ties through forms of social exchange, cultural exchange, and economic exchange across the border in a time where we've seen the border increasingly militarized and increasingly legislated to be a divide. I think in markets, we're able to catch these glimpses of how it is that communities are resisting that imposition of division and continuing to signal towards the possibility of reimagining what it means to belong to uh, a community, uh, a region, a region yeah. uh, in ways that are more uh, inclusive and expansive than, than the ones that are often imposed. So I think that that's an important element of the context. Um, and I think, as Amy was mentioning, uh, because of the inability for us to continue operating in, in the way that we had, 
going to markets, setting up stalls uh, to conduct research, to invite students to join us, to work with vendors in the spaces, to work with artisans that we would invite to work in the markets. Um, we had to figure out other ways of continuing to just, on the one hand, reflect on the meaning of such spaces and on the importance of that such spaces in this moment of crisis, uh, because markets, to some extent, continued operating because they were able to offer, you know, like essential, essential goods services. and essential services. Um, so they maintained this this uh, function of allowing people access to essential goods. But also, I think the ways in which they continued to foment uh, these spaces for encounter, uh, even if that encounter was at a distance, even if that encounter was outside, just by the nature of the market itself, I think um, it facilitated uh, a little bit something akin to socializing uh, in this moment of social distancing and, and isolation. Um, and I think that that also led us to just think about how important such spaces are uh, and we began to develop research to think about the history of marketplaces uh, like Sobreruedas, like Tianguis in, in Mexico. It led us to uh, think about the etymology even of the term Tianguis, uh, which was one that we hadn't fully uh, stopped to appreciate. Uh, and the fact that it, it comes to us from uh, Nahuatl, from the term Tianguitzli, uh, which is how uh, Mexica Aztec people would refer to marketplaces, literally translating as something like a space or site of gathering uh, or gathering place. But it was also a term that they used to refer to the Pleiades constellation, uh, which is also known as the Seven Sisters. Um, and so for us, that kind of etymological linking of these sites of gathering here, you know, on earth for us to encounter one another as human beings, to exchange with one another. And at the same time, this kind of pivot towards uh, thinking about the cosmic, the ancestral, um, you know, the celestial for us was extremely poetic. Uh, and I think in this time of, of crisis, uh, thinking back to the ways in which ancestors, you know, our ancestors and, and, you know, the people that came before us that, you know, from which we inherit some of these traditions, like the marketplace, like the Tianguis, were able to continue gathering, continue exchanging, even in spite of their own cataclysms, even in spite of their own, uh, you know, crises, uh, not just, you know, relating to public health, but because of colonization, but the literal kind of imposition uh, of the colonial project um, and their ability to withstand uh, and, and to, I think, resist some of that imposition of colonization by maintaining some of these forms of gathering and exchanging alive became really Im important for us to reflect upon and, yeah. and just draw strength from. Yeah. And I think like specifically, right, that it's this cluster of stars in the sky, the Tianquitzli, that was named that way because of this proximity that like in 2020, we could look up and see that same clustering of stars, right? With our own eyes in our own um, position in the Americas, like to be able to see this same thing was also felt very much like, um, I don't know, like a gift, like it was a gift, right? It felt like this gift to be able to triangulate that. I thought that was wonderful. Thanks, y'all, for for engaging that that first question. You know, I think the this the, the we had multiple contexts that we were addressing with that first question, whether it's the space and place of training and, and the work that um I was talking about, like what was the work that we were gonna do to 
for me to teach students how to do oral history, what was the space and place that I wanted them to kind of uh, start from and that how and how we built that out. And then, Dan, you were talking so much about um, the space and place of shelter um, and what it means to uh, engage uh, that work, um, you know, because the pandemic is such an unevenly was such an unevenly distributed experience. And with the beautiful work that y'all shared about, you know, the relationship of history and placemaking and exchange and commerce and the intense disruption of that, uh, the intense policing of that, even when it was done safely, right? I mean, there was this this other kind of aspect to, you know, spaces that were really important, whether it was at the border or when we wanted to mourn uh, folks who passed, you know? Um, how do you congregate safely and how policed some of that was really spoke to those challenges, which hopefully uh, it's okay if we move to the next question, which is really about our writing practice. Um, how did we, how did writing reflectively on this pandemic open portals to humanely connect and respond to intense social isolation, loneliness, and disruption of community and social spaces? I wanted to just bridge uh, a story uh, from uh, the work that we did uh, with what we were all talking about. And Amy, the way that you put like, you know, the gift of both the research itself, but also the constellations. There's one story uh, in the archive that when uh, uh, one of our amazing emerging oral historians, uh, Setlali, shared was the story of, of Setlali's brother, Anthony, really going through it. And just this really beautiful story of trying to find creative ways to keep the romantic spark in a relationship going. <laughs> and they, they looked up makeout spots um, in, uh, in Chino. And uh, it tells this really beautiful story of driving and having this panoramic view over, over the valley and eating in and out and just connecting. And this is a few weeks into quarantine, right? And for me, it really spoke to some of the, the creative ways uh, that we navigated this unwieldy emotional terrain of the pandemic, because it was unwieldy. It was, it was cumbersome. It was, it was difficult. And and that story is a gift for me, writing reflectively on both uh, the work that students uh, and research, student researchers allowed me to write on um, and, and share some of their stories as well um, was a gift in and of itself because it's been a difficult time for me personally. What does it mean to navigate the pandemic from a different perspective of the challenges of, of a pandemic and the idea that it's going to end when you have loved ones who are immunocompromised? What, what can I hold on to, to keep being creative about living in these times? And these stories for me were really helpful of continuing to think about the creativity, continuing to think about what it means to congregate safely. And that's no small feat when you're also exhausted and a little burnt out. So it gave me a lot of energy and resource with the small cohort of students that I collaborated with. Every time we checked in, um, amongst each other, it was a serious way of of developing and continuing friendships. So I was really thinking about the role and space of, you know, not just having positive relationships that are, you know, you're trying to work through non-hierarchical relationships when things are 
uh, economically hierarchical with faculty and student relationships, but also like something that we're endeavoring to do something different. Every time we would congregate to unpack, debrief uh, interviews, it felt like we had this small team of folks that we could always turn to, to think about this intentionally in a way that didn't feel dismissive or that didn't feel so rushed, right? Or that didn't feel like we were moving, brushing past the intricacies of the pandemic. And that, that to me is invaluable, right? It's unquantifiable to think about um, this kind of research in that way, right? And so for me, that allowed me to challenge uh, the isolation that uh, we constantly had to go through as, as we kind of navigate the space of, for, 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 for my household, kind of this kind of liminal space of being immunocompromised. Um, the little liminal comes and goes because of different circumstances. And for the students themselves, uh, those who went on to grad school, those who are continuing to do their work. One student talked about how isolating, so they finish grad, they finish undergrad during the pandemic. Then pandemic restrictions kind of lift. And then they then they go through the isolation of grad school and high theory, <laughs> you know, while they're having in-person classes. And then the virtual spaces that they reconnect with to do debriefings to check in felt like the spaces that were holding them together. And that was not only encouraging for us as a, as a cohort and, and, and community of friends, but also, you know, really speaks to what isolation means, right, um, as we think about grad school. Uh, and so it really, for me, it fostered the kinds of, of cohorts that I wish uh, were possible in grad school, because uh, sometimes it's really difficult, <laughs> uh, often, as, as you all know. So I'll pass, I'll pass the, the mic to Dan to reflect on this question. Yeah, that was so that was so um giving also following the theme of gifts to to hear. Yeah, I think for me, um so there were many there were there were many kind of aspects like res like responses to the the isolation and different forms of isolation. Um I think, but I, I really like how you've both how you've all been talking about this the gift, and I, I kind of wanna acknowledge the gift in in um in my in my research that I wrote about in this particular piece, which was methodological, I mean, it, I think, and this is what I tried to kind of center the piece on, which is like learning, learning from the activists I was writing about how to write about them without putting the labor on them of telling me like how do I do this work, you know, like I'm choosing to do this. It doesn't serve like they're trying to stay afloat. <laughs> my writing about them, you know, and my dissertation doesn't serve them in a way, sure, I'd like to think it does. And maybe for a grant, like at best, what more can I hope for, you know, but, but the reality is their, their, their survival, like their focus on survival is the, the, the main thing. And, and so I think, you know, the gift, the gift that like they gave me was, was the methodology for research that I learned because everything felt so much more uh, like put into like stark relief because of the pandemic, but that methodology really will survive the pandemic. Like the, what I learned from them is something that I I I will carry on to other work and and apply. So, you know, one thing I think for for me being you know um, like being mostly remote and being online and really feeling in isolation that a lot of the activists and, and residents at the shelter are not experiencing in the same way. And also thinking about like, you know, how do I connect? 
Like, how am I going to be doing these the interviews? Um, I mean, sure, Zoom and WhatsApp can can go super far, but at some at some point, it's important to be in the space. But then, how do I ethically, like, you know, how do I think about the border and my body at the border ethically? You know, what am I carrying? What am I what am I bringing? Like, how do I physically disrupt, or what potential does my body have to disrupt the ecosystem they have in that shelter and at that space? You know. Um, so these were these were questions that that I was kind of thinking about, and that and that they like gave me the gift of of thinking through with them. And uh, and I think a lot of what happened was, you know, uh, I mean, there were many different structures, and, and I, I'll probably get to those later. That that made you know that the pandemic exacerbated that made for a constantly changing social structure. So like, you know, I check in, I do an interview with. Uh, say the director. So th- the, this particular shelter is Casa Arcoiris that that I talk about in this piece, um, and it's a shelter in Tijuana for trans and queer migrants. Um, and I remember the first interview I did was via Zoom with an interim director, but then you know they're trying to stay afloat, and the pandemic is not making things easier. So folks are shifting out of different roles, and you know I'm wanting to make sure that I'm checking in with as many people as possible, and what that also means is that folks might say different things or have different views about like visibility or what they want to be included in in what I can write about what I can't write about and so they you know so much uh, so much of like the questions things that I think about you know as someone who does like trans studies is visibility and mistakes of visibility and that it's not a fixed thing but that it's always relational like we make visibility based on how we want to be seen with one another in a given context and so if I'm thinking about that at the border where there's all different kinds of visibilities and that also applies to the activists, then, you know, it felt even more urgent to, to address that on folks' own terms. Uh, so, yeah, so, so this was, you know, this was like the gift that they gave me. And I think that gift and the, the larger process of trying to do the work in a way that I thought would be like be doing right by them also. And that wouldn't like use visibility or render them visible in such a way that it exposes folks in a way that is undesirable or can produce more harm. That this ended up being another form of like relation. Like this ended up being a way to be in community with the folks I was researching. And I think that is something that I will continue to be thankful for and and think about. Thank you, Dan. And thank you, Mario, for those reflections on the gift. Mario, we were talking about the constellation and then your student is Sidlali for star. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I, also th- I thought that was really beautiful. Um, we want to start this maybe uh, reflective portion by uh, reading something that we wrote that didn't make it into the article. But during 2020, we were working with a group of... Um, artisans, all of whom were immigrant women um, uh, in Santa Monica during a residency, like a virtual residency we did at 18th Street Art Center. And so it was this collective, it was also a collective um, and including myself, there was seven um, women who worked on this with us. And so again, the Dianguis, uh, I mean, the Dianguitsi constellation, it's also known as the Seven Sisters. So this all just felt very like fitting and important. 
So what they're working toward currently is establishing a community marketplace there for um, local vendors um, and artisan folks. And so together we started to have meetings toward this. Um, and one of the pieces that we included in the exhibition that we did um, that came out of this residency was is an embroidered tarp that we hope one day will be a shade structure um, in that community marketplace. And on that tarp, there's this kind of speculative story for this kind of origin story for markets and marketplaces. Do you wanna, do you wanna yeah, read it? I can read it. So it says, there was always bounty. The difficulty was distributing it. So against the darkness of the sky, the ancestors lit flames and they saw other fires burning in the distance. They moved toward one another's lights and their light grew brighter and the people were able to gather under the communal glow to exchange. They decided they would return to this crossroads and they brought with them their harvests and their crafts, their animals and their songs. The bounty was shared and the people were pleased. Their descendants recreate such spaces to share riches from the earth treasures made with their hands, stories and fleeting accords made in the way of their ancestors to light a way forward towards one another. So I guess we wanted to share that in part because it's a different kind of reflective writing than maybe what it is that we offer in the article. But I think um, in the Foundry piece, a lot of that also just began uh, through writing that was extremely like like descriptive writing that sought to acknowledge these vignettes, these moments in the marketplaces or with others like on Zoom and in these different modalities that stayed with us for one reason or another, right? They had like a tackiness um, in like their kind of affective like impact. And we wanted to think about why that was, like, why was it that that was the thing um, that stuck with us. And so in terms, I guess, of like the portal, um, we realized that some of those moments in the piece were these kind of portal moments. And, and that this, like this text, this kind of speculative um, story poem that Misal just read could also like um, sort of do that. No, I think, well, I think we've already spoken a little bit about, I think uh, a lot of the research into the etymology and, and the kind of research into the history of marketplaces uh, was taking place and, and ultimately being, was leading to um, other writing <laughs> and was leading to, that writing became, a, I think, an important outlet for us to begin to process what it is that we were exploring, I think, uncovering through through our research in a way that's felt more central by necessity. Uh, in the past, I think some of that research would then lead to, you know, a public program in a marketplace mm -hmm. to explore like this history with others, but uh, we were unable <laughs> to facilitate that experience. So then we, we turned towards, uh, I think, these more poetic forms of writing in order to perhaps one day be able to share it. So I think the, the also throughout the pandemic, we were being asked to because of the you know limitations on the present really think about the past and really think about like the research that we were conducting but also think about the future and what it is that we wanted to intentionally bring forth once we were able to 
Um, and I think that that also was something that felt um, generative uh, and that we could do through writing, mm -hmm. how it is that we can suture together uh, the past to think about the present and to ultimately envision a future. Um, and I think that that became a really interesting space for us to inhabit through writing uh, and led to, you know, things like the story that we just uh, read, the poem, um, but also some of the writing that's in the Foundry piece as well. And maybe I think I said I used the term like tackiness because I was thinking about tape, but I what I mean is like sticky, you know, like not a not not that word as it's tied to taste, but as it's tied to like adhesion. <laughs> thanks, thanks for sharing that, y'all. Footnote. <laughs> as, as a minor footnote. <laughs> thanks for sharing that, y'all. You know, yeah, like what what keeps us what keeps the sort of work felt right as we're writing um, and as we're also like, you know, sharing this work uh, to folks who are engaging uh, both the podcast, but also uh, the writing. And just just in terms of time, uh, I wanted to share the next question, which is a little bit of a two parter. Uh, so maybe we'll engage this question and um maybe jump towards the fourth one after that, or the fifth one after that, if that's okay with y'all. The next question for our roundtable is, in what ways does your contribution uh, provide inroads into understanding the complex and messy temporalities produced by the ongoing pandemic? And how does that, as a result, help us resist uh, the historical erasure of the pandemic? I've been really trying to think about this question I was I was really intentional about thinking about this question for uh, while I was writing, and it it keeps coming up in in our in our research and as well as in some of the pedagogical projects attached to the Archives of Mortality project. One of our brilliant students, uh, Vanessa, is a public health major and brought this different perspective to oral history interviews that were so qualitatively focused, right? Um, so grounded in understanding the emotional realities of folks. And Vanessa, um, in, in a lot of our conversations, was really taken aback by how folks who are really, in our, in our archive at least, folks who are really prepared for the emotional labor of the pandemic and it's constant, I wouldn't even say ebbs and flows, it was like constant shocks and constant um, flatness and then elevation and was folks who had experienced uh, mortality very closely um, seemed to be rather um, a bit more prepared for being caretakers and, 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 and excuse me, caregivers and to understand the severity of what was going on and what was possible. And they found that to be really instrumental in thinking about what public health looks like uh, from both an ethnic studies perspective, but also from this very grounded methodological approach. So we did two interviews. One interview was an oral life history, um, sort of what are the different coming of age stories in your life and how do those coming of age stories inform uh, your understanding of relationships and care. And then we did one that was very focused on the first year of the pandemic, right? Um, kind of going over major events, but uh, allowing the first interview to shape, reshape our questions. And Vanessa's public health background really allowed us to think about how 
challenging this idea of, of who was going to take it seriously, who wasn't taking it seriously, and introducing this different approach of who was who had gone through some things, right? Um, one of our narrators uh, and contributors to the archive provided this really beautiful story of having taken had taken care of their grandma as they were ill of, of of cancer and the rigors of that kind of knowing okay school right now is not the priority I want to be with her I want to center her um, I want to take her to appointments and the, the idiosyncrasies described the very you know the, all of the little details that go into taking care of somebody were described and then they described that as a seminal seminal moment in shaping okay that's the that's the news okay here's what we need to do and here are all the little details that we need to do to survive this pandemic which really speaks to me to the nature of why we named it the archives of mortality we were really focused on what mortality meant um, challenging the narrative of essential labor right uh, essential labor the idea that we're not mortals, right? That, you know, being positioned to premature death um, is a function of, of capital, uh, of capitalism, you know? And, you know, that story really helped us think about the different temporalities um, that folks were operating under. Whereas uh, there was other experiences with folks who were interviewing, um, you know, friends who were in college who really had their hearts set out on a very specific career path within a very specific time frame, who are actually concerned with death um, in a way that, you know, at 18, 19, 20, with some of our narrators, wasn't so central. Um, the, but the invincibility of, of youth seemed to be a little bit, uh, felt a little bit different, at least for a period of time within those first six months before vaccination. And, you know, I found those temporalities to be really important to articulate, to also challenge this, you know, these ideas of who was ready, who wasn't, or who was resistant, uh, and, and, you know, to some of those things. And to really think about the different types of emotional labor, the different types of care work that folks did prior to that, that then prepared them for uh, different forms of mourning, grief, care, and a sense of resoluteness that perhaps other folks in the family did not have, which I thought was really compelling to think about what we learned going through that, surviving this pandemic, moving forward, right? Um, and I think that's something we also have to demand and ask for uh, when we think of this structurally, um, because it's very clear that structurally, um, that's not the case, uh, where we haven't been learning our, our lessons and it's it's up to us and our different networks of, of activists and communities to really articulate what the structural lessons are, because we're moving way too damn fast with this thing. So those are some of the kind of ways that I was thinking about time um, with uh, with our work. Um, and I'll pass the mic to to Dan. That was really beautiful, Ben. Thank you for for sharing all of that. Um, trying to return, return to my piece. Um, it brought up so much, you know, just thinking about my own experience of temporalities in, in those moments. I'm just, uh, but in terms of the piece, I think, I don't know that the piece itself provides like inroads into like, you know, um, different temporalities uh, that the pandemic, you know, um, produced. But um, I think that the piece comes out of an effort like comes out of a, a, um, 
a belief that like it is important to historicize um, and to write about the labor of activists who make, you know, in this case, who make trans and queer migrant life possible, because that like, you know, that is a, that is my way, like, and it's the way that I can do it. It's like, it's, it's one way, it's one way to do it. Of course, not the only way, but it's the way that I can do it to try and, um, you know, provide a record or put into writing um, uh, this kind of, this kind of labor um, and world making that, that trans and trans feminist um, uh, activists make possible. And I think that, you know, to, to, per, to try and contribute to, to like that record is a way of uh, countering the structures of forgetting or countering the ways, the, the kinds of erasures that trans and queer communities and trans and queer migrant communities constantly face. Um, and, you know, and then with the pandemic, there's like added pressure maybe to like forget certain things or, you know, so, so I think, I think that's like, I guess for me, I, I, I my response to that two-pronged question is like one, <laughs> because uh, the um, writing about the work, I think is, is a way of trying to counter that like, you know, erasure. Yeah, I think I'll, I think, I think that's my response. So I will pass the mic. <laughs> So I think we already started to speak a bit about how it is that we have been thinking about the multiple tem- or engaging with multiple temporalities through our research and through our production uh, relating to marketplaces. I think spawned by uh, the pandemic, we were able to think uh, historically about the origin of some of these markets and the long history that they have and and the vital role that they've played um, in confronting these many moments of crises and and kind of ongoing forms of uh, you know crises and, and erasure. And I think that in terms of how this helps us resist the historical erasure of the pandemic itself, I think in the piece uh, we try to document and mark, you know, very. Uh, we try to include uh, references to folks that are no longer a part of these market spaces. Uh, we were unfortunately, you know, unable to fully catalog and document uh, the full extent of how many vendors, for example, uh, passed away during the pandemic and are no longer setting up their shops. Uh, but I think that uh, in the piece, it felt important to at least name some of them and the to also name the absence that that uh you know that will remain in the marketplace uh, because of the pandemic um one vendor in particular was a music uh vendor at the national city swap meets uh felipe mm-hmm. uh would set up a be- really beautiful stall of cds mostly you know uh, Latino, Mexican music, a lot of it very local, Tijuana, San Diego, LA specific music, not selling a lot of CDs anymore, but would sell these USBs that were loaded with a bunch of music uh, to try to just, uh, you know, stay afloat and to make things work. Um, but one of the um, elements of the stand was that he would have the speaker uh, playing music. Uh, so he was kind of also unofficially the DJ of like a quarter of the market through the music that he would play. Um, And he was someone that unfortunately passed away during the pandemic. Uh, And so now you return to the market and it's not just the loss of the actual objects of, you know, the CDs of the USBs of the music 
that was maintaining these kinds of regional ties, uh, you know, through culture and through like oral traditions, um, but also just the physical like absence of the sound, uh, which was very um, noticeable for us. Uh, and I think for others as well, for, especially for other vendors and, and for other shoppers, uh, I think marking those types of um, absences for us through, through the writing became important. Um, and I think, potentially, you know, taking um, inspiration from that to to think about what it means to to really mark, you know, how it is that markets have changed because of the pandemic, how it is that we have changed as a community, um, and to also just recognize the importance of such spaces and these opportunities to still gather, to try to process that together uh, seemed like important. So I think as we were speaking about with the earlier question, I think really thinking about uh, trying to undertake this labor of research, of creative production, of writing as a way of of thinking about how it is that we can continue to maintain the past alive in spite of of the many forms of erasure that we're experiencing in the present. So that in the future, I think those histories, those stories, um, can can remain uh, in some shape or form, yeah. uh, and continue informing how it is that we use these spaces and how it is that we gather. Yeah, and something that that's beautiful that I hear reflected in like the methodology that Dan shared and um, like the like sort of honoring the labor of these trans activists in this writing by writing in this methodology that you adopted and then that Mario speaks about with you know this like archive of mortality is also like the way that like our I think the way that this work also is seeking to sort of like, like hold up or I don't know, in like some way, like acknowledge, right, and create like a, I don't know, I think about, I think about it as like a, a song dedication. Sometimes I think about our work in that way, right, where it's like, I don't, I, I, these are the feelings that I feel there's this whole affective like texture to some of this production. And I don't know if I will ever be able to convey this in my writing. So this is like a mixtape, um, but instead <laughs> this is like my mixtape for you because you know, like your work mattered. Um, and now that these folks are not in the world, the world has changed, but I, but I have, right. Like, because I experienced, because I had this experience with them because I am a human and I, I, I carry their memory with me and I can share that in my research. It also becomes a way of like keeping alive those contributions and right, like shouting out our people. Um, so that I, I just wanted to say that about that too. Thanks y'all for, for sharing your beautiful perspectives on, on that question about, you know, not just like it's not a question of time is really a question of appreciation as well right appreciating um you know who makes these spaces possible right whether it's at the border um or you know in these marketplaces right like the the absence of sound or um the possibility of life right i mean you know it can it can very easily be not just erased because it was never even documented to begin with right i mean there's so many layers to that piece i wanted to honor all of our time um and i was i wanted to check in with y'all if it was okay if 
we moved to the fifth question. Um, and because I also think it gestures as well to, you know, some, you know, a way to think about what hap what happens after <laughs> reading the piece, right? What do you hope readers consider and act upon after reading your contribution to the special issue? You know, this question for me is is huge because a big piece of of the essay looks at the workshops that we did, right? So I really wanted to center the the fact that we were all extremely busy with navigating life at the time. And I really wanted to think about something like, for instance, instead of doing such a strict annotator bibliography or a literature review of oral historians and how oral historians do the work, I really wanted to ground the work around the folks who joined us in workshops. And the reason why I'm centering that isn't necessarily, which I think ties back to the previous question. It's, some, it's something that didn't make the piece. But one of my intentions with that was we were alive and still talking about these methods as really crucial to being alive. And, you know, there were maybe times where students, um, you know, re reading felt a little difficult, right? And the the time that you could make to get yourself to the screen and to participate in a virtual workshop perhaps was that was the energy that you had for that for that for that workshop for that training i really wanted to honor the fact that that's that's where a lot of our work happened and i shared a lot of journal entries from students about what they found compelling and i really wanted to honor the importance of what it means to be present when we're present <laughs> Right. Um, and there's the space of recording history, right? And 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 historicizing it. Then there's the very fragile, delicate present moment, even if it was virtual, of being alive at that time. And honoring that with how we were reflecting in real time to people who are alive. Right. Um, and so um that was a big piece of that. And I and I think. In terms of acting on that, or in terms of of considering that, I really hope uh, that the other piece of of what those workshops mean is also honored, which is we also need to really, really intentional about what it means to be doing this work in regards to trauma and in regards to our traumas as researchers as well, and the vulnerability of that while we're living through. Uh, you know, a constant state of being re-traumatized and to, to really think about what are the practices that we utilize both when we're trained, when we're being trained, right? Um, and when we're holding space for that, uh, specifically with uh, folks who are relatively new to this, this process of research and, and the ways that uh, it's been done historically to think about the embodied practices because it is so damn embodied and to do that very gently and to think about what, you know, what that is for us rather than an intellectual exercise. Um, and so I talk a little bit about meditation and contemplation in these workshops to, to position a friendly reminder of, um, of what research can be um, if trauma informed practices are not central there because we have wonderful folks who are really interested in this work, 
but that training of of what it feels like in the body um to to navigate mortality to navigate you know talking about these things really requires some uh, something a little more intentional so i hope that's acted upon or or considered at at the least and you know to continue to build community uh for for those reading for those engaging for those listening um about um you know continuing to do ethical work um thank you for that i mean i think um my response is very similar to yours in in the sense of you know embodied research you know um and and research really like thinking thinking like with our full selves and thinking like even beyond ourselves when it comes to research and all the things that get negotiated in terms of like the impact the you know um the differences you know that can clash um that can produce impact that scholarship doesn't erase those things and and we're we're accountable to all of that and i um i mean i i think for me that's definitely something that i would love to be considered you know i it's part of the lesson that i learned in this piece and really in writing my dissertation as a whole you know questions of like method often come up and um and i know there's all kinds of like guidelines you know like um there's all kinds of rules and guidelines as to like how to properly do you know research or what's considered to to be proper research but it, those rules are like it's it's so difficult to think of those as like that's just basic you know like that that's not enough <laughs> you know um everything else is like it's contextual and that context will always change so really thinking about research itself as a form of community building as you were saying you know i think is 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 key because what that also means is that rules or or yeah rules will be kind of negotiated and established as we go so this is something that that i definitely kind of like learned and tried to bring into the piece and hope that that you know comes out and also you know thinking about the impact of scholarship like the embodied impact of scholarship and the material impact of scholarship and the like not just where it comes from but also like that it does have that kind of impact and i think that you know um like there's part of my article that's that kind of goes into this like uh, that that really thinks about what transborder research is and and i put the asterisk after after trans to really think about all the different types of gender expansive you know life uh infuse like what transborder like is <laughs> you know uh and can be and so there so there is kind of like a theoretical like bridging that happens in thinking about trans latin next studies but that's community building i mean that's not just theoretical that's community building and it happens in all different kinds of ways even outside of like theory and so um so yeah so i just really like want to kind of echo and think about that connection between embodiment and research and community building um and the different ethical ways of of doing um scholarship that are also like community building uh yeah i think uh not to speak for us but i think yeah we really agree with that i think the ways that we get trained to do research are like the first step <laughs> in a long then like and a complicated scaffold that we should co-create right like with all the people who are participating um in that process and maybe it's not a scaffold maybe it's like a pool or a spa of like sharing <laughs> like nice space i don't know so i agree with that and i i think um it, for us maybe one of the 
things that I hope readers will consider, especially any emerging artists or young people who are thinking about the arts and like the viability, right? Like of that as a as like a career, like in capitalism. And because I think so often um like emerging artists and young people, especially right, like folks who come from like a marginalized uh, background, you know, like people of color, um, like we there's like this sense that maybe that's that yeah, like going into art has to look a really specific way and often that practice is cited like in the studio and in the sort of like white supremacist history of um like the white cube and of gallery spaces um and I think if our contribution can do anything it can you know really demonstrate that's not necessarily the case right like that we can look to our market down the street um we can look to talking to like elders in our community um and craft practices that maybe are part of our family lineage um and all like the sound like the sonic histories of our childhoods and of our elders adolescence right to orient us toward the way that like we have always been surrounded by artistic and cultural production and that it's so vibrant and that those were all of these beautiful gestures of like intention that support like our being in this world right now just as we are right like and that's so I think that's so important right now in this political moment where there is this like project of erasure around uh like trans life so like the all of the attacks on like drag and on like these forms of cultural expression that have you know that are so like beautiful and like proclaim right like this vibrancy um and presence and life so I think I just want all of the emerging artists out there who are questioning that to reconsider (laughs) and to keep making that art and to keep being like being in their self and in their body and in their identity as they feel they want to be in that because you should little or maybe not little maybe not young maybe just emerging you should whoever it is that may hear this yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't know. yeah I think to I similarly I think I echo a lot of what was already shared but I, I think we found a lot of solace and hope and I think strength in turning to spaces that we felt were kind of giving us life in this moment of mass death and and violence um and so i think with a lot of our work because we're often dealing with immigrant communities working class communities communities who have and continue to go through many forms of uh, struggle uh, and injustice i think continuing to return to spaces of healing of gathering of you know, platforms that allow us to imagine a future that is more livable, I think becomes really important. Um, And I think that with our work, we also want to continue to dedicate energy to those spaces, Um, even if it's, you know, 
through the most poetic uh, realm uh, and through, you know, arts making, I think we we want to, I guess, express a kind of sense of gratitude and appreciation for such spaces and the fact that they are vital and they're also not guaranteed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that for us, there's also this sense of, on the one hand, really wanting to celebrate markets that I think offer so much to so many people, but also recognizing that we need to continue maintaining those spaces alive. Um, because, yeah, I, I think to, to speak about swap meets, especially in Southern California, we've noticed how, you know, issues of gentrification start to displace spaces where markets are happening, where swap meets are happening. Here in National City, we see the literal encroachment of Amazon vans mm-hmm. on some of the space where the swap meet is setting up. So I think just recognizing how these spaces that have function that have these deep, deep histories um, that have given so much to like our immigrant parents that continue to give so much to us. There are spaces that we must continue to cultivate and to appreciate and to nourish, nurture and to nourish uh, through our presence and through our willingness to, I think, participate uh, in the communities that, that are born and, and kind of fomented and, and sutured together through these spaces and opportunities for gathering. So I think if anything, hopefully this space or this piece uh, will give people some uh, a new kind of dimension to think about when they visit their local swap meet or sobre ruedas or tianguis, um, and also maybe give them a sense of the importance of their presence within that space to continuing to maintaining alive these traditions and these spaces for gathering and belonging. Thank you both so much. Yeah, just gratitude and excitement to to read y'all's contributions and yeah. everyone else's contributions and a big thank you thank you for your work and thank you for your thinking like for your senti pensamiento you know i love that i echo that right back to all of you it's been an honor to be in conversation um uh for real it's been an honor and i also look forward to everyone's work so and thank you mario for hosting this space and such beautiful moderation thank you appreciate y'all